Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. This is uh, the sixth and final part of our series, The Diversity of Trans. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed the series. If you've listened to all the episodes, I highly encourage that you do listen to them all. If you um, have only listened to one or two, um, I encourage you to listen to them all. That, that's the whole point is that we would get our arms around a glimpse of the diversity of voices in the trans conversation. And uh, there's no way we can capture every single kind of experience. There's just, there's way too many, uh, way too many um, lived experiences and perspectives and backgrounds and foregrounds and all, all of the above. Uh, but I hope that these six um, conversations were helpful in ex uh, exploring the diversity of the trans conversation. My guest for today is Dr. Paul Ruse. Uh, Paul is Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Endocrinology, and Diabetes. Um, if you're watching the video, you see me kind of looking around here because um, I'm trying to read his profile as, as accurately as I can. Um, he is uh, Associate Professor at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Uh, Dr. Ruse has a uh, an MD and a PhD. He is a he is an endocrinologist, um, and he is an expert in the the medical side of the conversation about puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, which we explained what those are in this conversation. Uh, Dr. Ruse uh, did want to make it really clear that his views do not represent um, the university as a whole. He's, he's not like a, he's not representing the perspective of Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. These are his own personal uh, thoughts as an, an endocrinologist. Um, uh, also, uh, my book Embodied uh, has been published uh, as of February 1st. You can get it through Amazon. Uh, the full title is Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. So um, yeah, if, if you're li listening to this episode because you were drawn to maybe the medical discussion, the scientific discussion about cross-sex hormones and puberty, puberty blockers, I do uh, discuss um, this aspect of the conversation uh, throughout the book. Uh, I'm not a medical expert, but I've had to do a lot of uh, research in this area. And that's how I came across Dr. Ruse's uh, very great work. Uh, what I love about Dr. Ruse is he's very level-headed. He's kind, he's compassionate. He wants the best uh, of people. And he's also very, I think, very honest with where we are at with the science in this really important conversation. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology raw, or just look down into the show notes. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to the theology in the raw Patreon community. Without further ado, let's welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Paul Ruse. I'm here with uh, uh, an acquaintance slash uh, friend. We've, we've met only virtually a couple times. Uh, we have some mutual friends, but I'm here with uh, Dr. Paul Ruse. Um, that is how you pronounce your name. Is that correct? You told me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the H is silent. The H is silent. So, um, Paul, thanks so much for, for being on. And um, I really wanted to have, have you on because there, there, there's a lot of public discussion about um, – uh, trans, you know, tr trans teenagers transitioning, the, the, the efficacy of puberty blockers, um, the, the potential side effects of cross-sex hormones, and then medical transition, and 
you know, this is, this is something you've, you've really become an expert on. Um, and what I love about your approach is you just, you know, this is your specialty from a medical standpoint. And so you, you can just give us the facts, you know, I know in a day and age like today when everybody likes to claim to have the facts, but I, you know, as I've looked at your work, you really do seem to just say, here's where the science is at, make an informed decision. Um, but if, if we're not giving people all the facts, then that's when it, um, I think, can be really unhelpful. So um, why don't we start, Paul? Why don't you give us a background of your expertise and how you got into this conversation in particular? Oh, very happy to do so. And again, it is uh, you know a pleasure to have this opportunity to, to speak um, in this area. Um, you know, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. I'm, I'm an academic uh, physician scientist. So I spend a lot of my time uh, both doing uh, basic science uh, research and uh, also uh, in caring for uh, children that have a variety of hormone uh, diseases. Um, certainly a lot of what we do is related to diabetes, but it also includes uh, issues of um, abnormal puberty and uh, disorders of sexual development um, and, and all sorts of um, questions related to that. And so I've been in practice uh, for over 20 years. Uh, I've been at a large academic uh, institution and uh, have, have done a lot um, uh, in my field uh, you know, to be able to advance uh, science uh, relevant to my specialty. And, and so that training, I think, has really uh, helped in, in asking the important questions in, in this particular topic uh, related to gender dysphoria. I, I got involved uh, more actively in that conversation while I was chief of our division of endocrinology at, at my institution. Uh, and shortly after uh, I assumed that position, um, there was a really a national conversation that was going on about uh, this growing um, awareness of individuals that had uh, this discordance in their gender identity and their sex. And, and really specifically for my specialty, there was a, a move uh, to engage in treating uh, these affected uh, children with uh, hormones uh, to align the appearance of their body to conform uh, with their gender identity. Uh, and it was in the uh, context of of that being put forward to to start a clinic at my institution uh, for that purpose, uh, that I began e exploring the scientific evidence that was available uh, about that question and uh, entering into dialogue. and And we can talk a lot more about what I've learned over the last decade. Um, you know, as as that has been explored, and uh, you know, what to sum it up very um, succinctly, uh, there's still so much that we don't. Know. And uh, so that's really, I think, uh, it, that's why this conversation, I think, is so important, that we have the opportunity to, to put out there what are the scientific uh, facts that, that we uh, know and don't know, and uh, what are the questions and concerns that are, are uh, still remaining. So when, when did the, you said there was kind of a change toward um, uh, prescribing hormones for somebody, for, a, for an adolescent or pre-adolescent? who is wrestling with gender dysphoria or experiences gender dysphoria, when did that shift in protocol happen and why did it happen? Was it based on sci a rigorous scientific kind of uh, discussion or, or was it more, I, and I don't want to get over my skis here, but or was there some ideolo ideological movement um, that was pushing that change? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I can just uh, very briefly summarize, um, you know, that, that 
historically, uh, the approach to uh, such individuals that had that discordance between their gender identity and their sex uh, was to really uh, explore and understand, you know, some of the, the psychological underpinnings of, of where that identity came from, uh, to be able to support them and help them in, the, in that regard. But um, uh, this new approach uh, to affirmation, uh, rather than challenging that, that uh, gender identity, it used to uh, be referred to as gender identity disorder. It was recognized as as that uh, the uh, underlying um, difficulty was arising from um, the thought processes uh, that these individuals had. And I think there was a move... I, I think it is fair to say that there's a, a, a quite a bit of ideology uh, involved in, in really uh, thinking about that differently, uh, you know, making claims that really uh, the the mind um, is not a problem at all. It's that the, the body itself that um, that uh, was not formed uh, correctly. And um, again, that's not based on any science. And there's a, a lot that could be said about that. But this is about you know, dating back a little over a decade ago. Uh, my professional organization, the Endocrine Society first came out with uh, practice guidelines uh, in 2009, so to give you some ideas, and they revised those in 2017. And, and really moving away, so the traditional approach uh, was either uh, to try to assist affected children uh, in realigning their gender identity with their biological sex, or, or merely watching and waiting. And that was based upon some longstanding data uh, that the majority of children uh, that have this experience, uh, at least when this begins before the time of puberty, uh, will have a spontaneous realignment of the gender identity with their sex. And we're talking, you know, good estimates uh, around 85, 90 percent. Uh, and, um, and that was how it was approached in, in recognizing that. Uh, that has moved drastically now to the current approach of uh, affirming one's gender identity and then, you know, engaging in some of these medical interventions like uh, puberty blockers and, and cross-sex hormones that uh, we can talk about. Um, and it's really moved beyond, um, you know, looking at the various approaches to very strongly asserting that that's the only viable option forward, the affirmation-only approach. And um, really with, with the exclusion of even uh, investigating other uh, uh, ways that we can assist these individuals, you know, it's based medically on the recognition that a very uh, significant proportion of people that have this experience um, will have real suffering. And I, I think that that's not controversial at all. You know, markedly elevated rates of, of suicide, depression, eating disorders, substance abuse, uh, all of these things going on. So the the... A change went from considering this gender identity disorder to focusing on the discomfort that one has in that experience and, and referring to that as gender dysphoria. And that was actually came out formally in the diagnostic manual that psychiatrists use to classify psychiatric conditions, the DSM. Uh, and it really is important to, to recognize that there was no new science um, in making that transition. It was based on ideological principles. Uh, and to this day, really, um, is uh, there are many questions about what the underlying uh, causes uh, of the condition. Again, we can talk about that as well. Uh, so that's really historically, and, and it really began actually um, in the Netherlands. Um, there was a, uh, the Dutch had developed an, an approach um, really in, in older individuals um, for this affirmation and, and applying that uh, to children. So um, uh, moving toward uh, aligning the body to conform with the gender identity. And that was brought to the United States um, 
again, a little over a, a decade ago in, in the early 2000s, um, there was a, a prominent um, uh, endocrinologist, uh, Norm Spack at, at Harvard, uh, that really uh, was a strong advocate for this, but there are others as well. Uh, and, and I do recall uh, when this all began uh, at that time, at the professional meetings, there was really active discussion going on, recognizing that this was a controversial new approach. Uh, yet the discussion that went on at that time never resolved uh, the concerns that many of the people in my profession uh, had uh, about some of the ideological assumptions that were being made and really about the very little information that we had about um, the success of the approach. There was a lot of focus on the immediate effects of relieving that dysphoria uh, with virtually nothing known about the long-term outcomes uh, and uh, very little known about the consequences of, of these uh, hormonal treatments. Um, you know, again, in the, in the process, and, and again, you know, I, the process of, of the discussion was shut down very quickly, um, where panels were, were convened um, to, to purportedly discuss this. And, and really, the, the panels were heavily biased for people uh, supporting the affirmation uh, approach and, and really uh, shutting down the opportunity uh, to really raise some of the questions that I've continued to raise in this area. Yeah. Real quick, I want to come back. I want to go to the... Um explaining puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and, you know, from a medical standpoint. But um, can you, uh, you mentioned kind of in passing, I'd love for you to just maybe tease it out just briefly, but the difference between um, the older term gender identity disorder and in 2013, right, the, the new DSM came out, the fifth edition, and now it's called gender dysphoria. So it's still listed in the Manual of Mental Health Disorders. So I, I would assume that it's still technically a mental health disorder, but they've removed the term disorder and now replaced it with dysphoria. Can you yeah, unpack maybe why that change in language is actually significant? Correct. Well, you know, so there are many that would like to have that out of the manual altogether. Uh, the dilemma that one has is that one is uh, making the ideological assertion that this is part of uh, the normal human condition, uh, that this is, uh, you know, represents a you know, spectrum of, of human diversity. Um, yet at the same time, one is advocating for pretty significant medical intervention. So you need to justify why the medical profession needs to be engaged uh, in uh, addressing that condition. And really having it listed uh, is the means by which uh, it is justified that insurance companies uh, are pay for this and, and that uh, clinicians can engage in that. Um, there really is, if you think about it from a logical standpoint, um, a lot of um, questions that can be asked about, about that uh, assertion. If this is normal, you know, what is, what is the reason for having to, to um, engage in, in these uh, uh, interventions that, that have very significant uh, risks and, and long-term consequences? Um, so uh, it is shifting the, it's really stated that it's not a disorder um, and that they're just addressing the discomfort. Uh, yet, I think as, as one moves forward, um, they're, you know, the, logistically, they're, they're trying to figure out ways that um, to really move away from this is even a medical condition, yet still allow patients access to these uh, hormones. So, um, and again, you kind of said it in passing, but the um, the three main approaches, I'm sure there's variations, but like a one would be like a psychosocial approach, right? To, to look at uh, the psychological aspect of, of the dysphoria, what might be causing it, what might be flaring it up, what, what um, 
And then there's the watchful waiting, which is similar, uh, more just hands off, just let's wait and see um, what, what comes about. And then there's the affirmation, gender affirmative approach that, um, you know, wants to, says, you know, to align, to attempt to align the body with, with the gender identity through hormones and so on is, is, is the best or maybe even only way to, um, to relieve the dysphoria. Is, is that, did I get that I, I, largely correct? In, in yeah, I, I, th I think that, that that's correct as far as the, the various approaches. And I think where they differ, uh, they differ uh, in many ways. So they, they differ in what the scientific premise is, you know, in, in the intervention that one has, uh, what are the assumptions that we have, uh, and what, uh, what is the goal of the intervention as well. So that in the uh, the, what well, it's often referred to as the reparative approach, uh, you know, to assist that individual of having the, um, realignment of their gender identity, uh, with, with their biological sex, that, that would be an intended, uh, and desired goal. And, um, and again, it's, you, you know, based upon, uh, largely, at least in children on, on the natural trajectory, but, uh, the the watch and wait approach really is an unbiased approach, so it, it really doesn't seek any one particular outcome. It just looks at at the the likelihood um, of of spontaneous uh, realignment. And again, many people challenge that, um, but when you actually look at the data, it's a consistent finding. And and I think it's um, you know attempts to to dismiss uh, evidence uh, that really is is on par, if not stronger, than the evidence that people use uh, to make the counter argument. Um, so again, the the reparative approach has a desire to realign. Uh, the gender identity uh, with the biological sex, it makes sense from a medical standpoint that if that is the outcome, then one uh, is not uh, obligated to be uh, tethered to the medical establishment for the rest of their, their life. So they're not subjected to all of the um, medical risks that are associated with these hormone therapies. And so if you look at outcomes and desired outcomes, even aside from ideology, you have you know two groups of patients, one that are, are going to uh, have increased risk of of the hormones and, and another group that is going to be able to go on with life without uh, you know that that exposure. One would think that that would be a, a desirable outcome, but again, it's the ideology that is pushing this forward as the the goal is to uh, to affirm and have them move forward with uh, the uh, bodily changes um, and and so um, in the uh, watch and wait approach, it's also very important to recognize it doesn't mean do nothing, okay? So that it means that there's not a direction um, as far as a desired intent of the outcome. It's to support that individual during this process. And that can include uh, psychotherapy to address the issues of depression and anxiety and eating disorders and the other things that are going on. And that uh, really needs to be done in, in these individuals. Um, and this is best medical practice. We would do this for any patient that, that walked into the door, um, you know, suffering from, from depression or anxiety or any, any of the other what we call co comorbidities. Uh, so, and then the, the affirmative approach that the premise, again, as we stated, was that this is part, this is, um, the, the way it's often stated is that the, the patient was born in the wrong body. And the assumption is that the mind is, is correct and the, and the body uh, needs to be uh, changed to align with that. There's a lot of, uh, underlying ideology there. There's a lot of, um, uh, things that in the areas of philosophy and and, um, and other implications as far as how one uh, arrives at that um, understanding of the human person. Um, but that is why um, it is pushed uh, for affirmation. Now, the other argument 
for affirming an individual is um, the the data that shows that the alleviation of that dysphoria will occur in the short run for many of the individuals that are affirmed. And um, and again, going through the different components of that intervention uh, would be helpful. Um, again, without knowing what the long term outcomes are going yeah. to be. Well, let's. I want to. I really want to get there. The efficacy of, of uh, medical intervention. Um, but let's start with puberty blockers. For somebody that doesn't even know what that phrase is, can you explain what puberty blockers are and why they would be given to somebody who's experiencing dysphoria? Uh, yes. So uh, puberty blockers uh, are a, a drugs that are used uh, to halt uh, the normal signals that come from the brain to tell the gonads to work. So that normally um, during most of childhood, those signals from the brain, specifically the pituitary gland of the brain, um, are, are not uh, uh, operating, they're they're inactivated, um, and um, uh, and in. Uh, hold on a second, I'm gonna. That's fine. Yeah, if you need to take the call, you're. I'm sure you got. <laughs> a lot no, no, I'm just trying to figure. I'm just trying to figure out how to get it to stop making noise. I'm gonna I'm put it down here. Um, so I'm sorry. Let me start over again. So puberty blockers um, are a, 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 a class of drugs that are used to suppress the normal signaling uh, that comes from uh, the brain, the pituitary gland in the brain, to tell the gonads to work. Um, they're drugs that have been used uh, for for many years uh, to treat uh, children that have undergone abnormally early puberty. So um, normally the signals from the brain are secreted in short pulses. And when you give them continuously, rather than stimulating the gland or the, the gonad, uh, it actually shuts it off. Uh, they're also used in adults uh, to treat um, that are being treated with uh, for cancers, for example, where you want to shut down the the function of the gonads to, to protect them from damage. Um, and um, and we recognize that the condition that we treat in pediatric endocrinology of precocious puberty, uh, the puberty is happening at an abnormally early time point. Uh, that is where the drugs have been studied and where they've been approved by our Food and Drug Administration and where we have uh, quite a bit of experience in, in using these uh, um, medications. Uh, what is going on in the area of gender dysphoria is that they're now being used uh, to uh, halt normally timed puberty, so occurring at a, a, an age where uh, a child would normally go through the, the bodily changes of, of puberty um, together with the uh, psychological um, and social changes of adolescence. Uh, and and uh, the medicines themselves um, have not been studied uh, rigorously uh, in that condition. They've not been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for that purpose. Uh, we really, uh, they're used what we call off-label, um, which is not unique in pediatrics. We do that in many other conditions. Uh, but we really uh, have not investigated what the medical consequences of that are. We already know of many things that occur uh, at the time of puberty that are very important. Uh, for example, um, uh, improving the, uh, the density of one's bones that'll protect them from osteoporosis later in life. It's very critical that puberty occurs uh, for that to happen. Um, so there, the, the claims that are made for using pu puberty blockers in um, in children with gender dysphoria uh, are, are multifold. Um, you know, the, the claim is made that it um, gives some information um, about uh, in diagnosing the condition um, that when somebody starts going through uh, puberty and their body is changing, uh, some children will experience uh, worsening of the dysphoria. Um, it's an unwanted change for them. Uh, and that... Um, 
that by halting that puberty, we can alleviate um, that that discomfort that one experiences. Uh, we'll give them a little bit more time to sort through some of the issues uh, uh, of uh, their gender identity, uh, and it's also claimed that it's it's safe and fully reversible. And I, you know, I can um, say quite a bit about each of those claims. I've already mentioned the safety issue because it's not been studied. So it's it's really erroneous to say that we know that it's safe. We we don't have the information right now um, to really say that, and we do have things like uh, bone density that, that are, are clear risks. There's emerging data right now about the effects of, of um, the, those medications in, in normal brain development as well. We, uh, well, we know that the, the human brain is not fully developed um, by the time one reaches adolescence. It actually continues into the early 20s. Um, there's many things that are different in the adolescent brain um, that lead to uh, very uh, clear observable behaviors that any parent would recognize uh, as far as uh, impulsivity and, and uh, um, uh, risk-taking behaviors and, and, and the like. But there's also uh, questions about uh, the organization of the brain and, and uh, memory and, and, and spatial processing that, that uh, there's really not good evidence um, right now about whether there are effects there. Um, and then, you know, the question or the, the statement that it's fully reversible needs to be uh, unpacked just a little bit. And I, I hope we have time to do that. Sure. So um, what we're talking about is a developmental process. So what one means by saying it's fully reversible is that if you give the hormone, the hormones, the, the puberty blockers, uh, you'll shut the signals down. And if you stop giving that drug, uh, those signals will resume. That part is true. Um, yet you're um, blocking a development process that is, is uh, time dependent. And so that, uh, again, puberty is only one component of the changes from childhood to adulthood. Um, and there's many other things that are going on socially with the peer groups and in what we term adolescence. So if you halt that process and then resume it, you know, four, five, six years later, uh, you can't turn back the clock. You've actually uh, impacted the normal development of that child and, and all of the consequences of that uh, are, are not have not been fully explored. So uh, we cannot say um, that it's uh, fully safe. Uh, we cannot say that it's uh, fully reversible. Uh, and, you know, all of these claims. Uh, and then the other concern that we have, um, you know, that is that, again, coming back to this uh, understanding that the majority of, of affected children will have a realignment of their gender identity with their sex, uh, their biological sex. Uh, how much is this uh, locking in um, by suppressing puberty, locking in that transgendered identity and, and really actually pushing them down that path that, that at some point uh, may become irreversible. And there is data out there. There's published data in some of the, the, the few studies that have been done in this area um, that rather than having this usual desistance rate, um, in one study, for example, um, every single subject in that study went on to get cross-sex hormones, which is a very different outcome. Uh, and I know some people argue um, that the, the people entered into that study were uh, uh, well vetted and, and that they were just uh, the ones that were going to go on. But really, there is really no bi uh, biochemical test or any way that we can determine of those children that experience this condition, which of them will fall into the roughly 85% that will have the realignment of their gender identity with their sex and the, and the, the small percentage um, that will have persistent um, uh, uh, experience of that uh, gender identity. 
So um, again, many problems, uh, many questions, uh, and, and, and this really just needs from a medical standpoint uh, to be uh, discussed openly right. and, and not, uh, it's, it's part of the normal process that we do in other conditions uh, where we do operate in pediatrics with, uh, sometimes with limited information, but we're always willing um, and really need to as, as physicians and scientists question what's being done and design the proper studies that need to be done to answer those questions. And, and everything you've said so far, say in the last five, ten minutes about blockers in general, is this something that would be fairly basic knowledge to anybody with a degree in endocrinology? And if so, um, what percentage <laughs> of endocrinologists, not that you have a survey you've done, but I mean, um, if this is kind of basic endocrinology, then why are is it so widespread that the that, that, blockers would be freely given i mean is i i and i and i i want to weigh all the possibilities you know but w one possibility could be there's just so much ideological pressure that people who know know better otherwise are just saying well i don't want to lose my job my degree you know i'll just go with this i'm a little you know deep down i don't feel great about it but um is that yeah is it would that be <laughs> Would it, if I had 10 endocrinologists on here, would they basically say everything you're saying or would they be diversity of, of opinion? Um, so it's important, you know, to note that, um, you know, many uh, of my colleagues, um, you know, rely very heavily on the Reader's Digest versions, the, you know, the synopses, you know, the uh, recommendations of, of, you know, professional organizations without really critically uh, evaluating them. I think they're operating under the presumption that they're doing good. I think that the general uh, desire is to help these children, uh, and what they're continually being told um, is that this is the only way to uh, proceed forward or that uh, it, it is beneficial and uh, haven't uh, had the opportunity to actually look at the data. Um, it's even more concerning than that when we're looking at that. So the, 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 um, the guidelines that have been put forward uh, consistently make these claims, you know, that it's safe, reversible, and, um, you know, it doesn't take a lot from a, a medical a practitioner standpoint to, to recognize everything that I just said. Um, and if it wasn't uh, layered with the ideology, I, I think there would be general consensus in that area. Um, but um, that people have not considered uh, the assertions. They, they accept uh, what people put forward as evidence. Uh, in the published literature, um, a, a widespread concern is that uh, many of the papers that are being published are not of the the uh, that we expect for other conditions. Uh, and even more concerning to me is that many times uh, in the title or the abstract of the paper, conclusions will be stated that aren't even supported by the data that's in the, in the, the paper itself, uh, or at least can be questioned. Or, um, you know, no, no study is perfect. Uh, all studies have limitations. Yeah. Uh, many times the, the authors will list what those limitations are. How you take that information and apply it to your medical practice uh, is critically important, and um, that scientists as a whole are, are generally skeptical. Um, they, uh, you know, really constantly uh, question uh, what is being said. Um, unfortunately, the way medicine is practiced these days, um, that uh, many people um, are, don't delve that deeply into the, the literature itself. They're, they're not prepared to be critical. 
uh, or at least question, you know, what is being said. Um, but I think as physicians, uh, we, we generally want the best for our patients. We, we, that's why we do what we do. Uh, we want it, we do want to alleviate suffering. We want to minimize risk and maximize benefit. Uh, if we're true to that calling, um, we have an obligation uh, to be able to to uh, um, look more deeply into what's going on. And again, we do this in other areas, uh, and the, you know the challenge is to do this in this particular area as well, uh, and be willing to have that dialogue um, and not be dismissive of it uh, uh, up front. Or uh, you know to conduct a, a research study. Um, the, the traditional way we do research is is we we try to be as unbiased as we can. I think the reality is that you have to acknowledge that there are underlying biases uh, in everything that we do. Um, but we start with a, a what we call a hypothesis, um, and we we try to look at the evidence. Um, you know, for or against that hypothesis. In fact, the way that the research is usually stated is called the null hypothesis. We start with an assumption that there is no difference in a treatment, and we look for evidence that that disproves that uh, to show that there is. Um, many of the papers that are being published in this area uh, are starting with a pre with a conclusion and then looking for data to support that conclusion. And they're 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 quite biased in in, in the data that um, and the presentation of the data that's there, even by looking how they're conducted. So, again, it's a it's a problem within our profession. I think it's a problem that could extend well beyond uh, the condition of gender dysphoria if it's applied more broadly. Uh, it's a disservice uh, to the patients that we treat um, and, and leads to the potential for proposing therapies that um, are either not helpful or may, in fact, be harmful. There actually is a, a very uh, long history in medicine of things that we used to do thinking that we're doing good. And you can look back to the examples of, you know, bloodletting and uh, frontal lobotomies, you know, you know, as, as examples. And I'm not trying to say that these are the same conditions, um, but we learn as we go along and we're willing to, to look at the data. And we, especially in areas where we have so little information or where the quality of the information is so limited or poor, um, we have all the more caution. Um, and, and let me, you know, just emphasize this. You know, when we talk about those endocrine society guidelines that were published in 2009 and revised in 2017, within the guidelines themselves, they acknowledge the poor quality of the evidence. They rate it on a scale, you know, from very high quality evidence to, to very low evidence. And nearly all of the recommendations that were made in those guidelines were based upon a very low evidence. And by definition, that means that there's a high likelihood that as new information becomes available, that the recommendations will change. Some of them are, are based solely on, on what they call expert opinion um, and no data at all. Um, so that, um, you know, physicians should be cautious um, in, in doing this. And, and there's also a long history of clinical practice guidelines that have been revised and many times where the, the recommendations are, are 180 degrees different um, than um, what was previously recommended. I can give an example, you know, giving hormones to postmenopausal women, you know, um, is one great example of that. Um, so, you know, again, in, in that theme, um, I think that contributes a lot to, to where the medical profession stands. So just to sum up puberty blockers, so their puberty blockers might be given as young as 8, 10 years old. Is that roughly 10 to 12 maybe? Um, and, and so if somebody is experiencing gender dysphoria, the, all the studies show that an overwhelming majority, they, the dysphoria relieves itself 
you know, after maybe even by means of going through puberty. Um, and yet you, you, you mentioned that even a study that people who are, who go on puberty blockers, almost all of them, or one study was like a hundred percent ended up going on to cross-sex hormones and pursuing medical transition. So that, those are two very divergent statistics, you know? Um, and yeah, I'm sure that's interpreted different ways. So let's move, I guess, to cross-sex hormones. So if somebody goes on blockers, overwhelming majority will end up going on cross-sex hormones. So can you explain what cross-sex hormones are and, and what does the science say about the, the risks and benefits of that? Hey, happy to do so. So um, what we mean by cross-sex hormones are, um, you know, for example, giving testosterone to a biological female that desires to, uh, to uh, have the bodily characteristics of a, of a male um, or giving estrogen to a biological male um, that uh, desires to appear female. Uh, and, you know, these are, are it's important to know that that both males and females have both hormones. So uh, all men have both estrogen and testosterone and um, all women have uh, testosterone and estrogen. It's the relative amounts of those hormones that differ. Uh, and, uh, and we have many conditions that we, we treat as, as endocrinologists where those hormone levels are inappropriate for one's biological sex. A, a great example of that uh, is the treatment of too much uh, androgen or male hormone uh, testosterone in uh, females that have polycystic ovary uh, syndrome. Uh, and very well documented um, that there are very significant risks um, as far as uh, cardiovascular risk, metabolic risk uh, associated with that. And um, the difference is, you know, what, what the patient's desire is. It's not the difference in what the physiological um, or pathophysiological uh, effect of those hormones are, are going to be. Um, so if you give testosterone to a biological female, uh, you will... Um, uh, have impairment of the normal functioning of, of the uh, female reproductive system. So the uh, ovaries will not uh, function as they normally do. Uh, fertility will be uh, impaired. Um, you'll get uh, virilization, so growth of hair in places where, where you uh, are desiring to have that to occur. Um, and, um, and, and you have a, a whole host of, of, of changes uh, induced. So these hormones themselves act throughout the body. They don't just act on the reproductive system. Um, males and females uh, genetically um, being determined at the time of, of uh, fertilization, um, the differences between males and females occur in every nucleated cell of the body. Uh, and uh, the programming of those cells is geared toward uh, what would be expected uh, for that uh, biological sex. So giving testosterone to a female is not equivalent to giving that same hormone to a male and vice versa. Uh, and so, um, you know, as we think about the way that these hormones are given, um, many times, uh, for example, in females desire to appear as males, uh, they're achieving testosterone levels that are orders of magnitude higher than they would uh, ever uh, see, uh, even in conditions like polycystic ovary disease, and, and really reach the level that we would see in, in androgen-secreting tumors. Um, so what are the consequences of that? Some of them we know. Some of them we're still trying to uh, unpack. Uh, and some of them uh, we're very likely to discover down the road um, you know, are going to be very significant. So there, 
there's there's clearly uh, changes that occur. Uh, and uh, for example, I'll just give you a couple of them. Um, it's very well known if you give estrogen uh, to a biological uh, male um, that you have about a five-fold increase uh, in incidence of stroke. Okay, so that uh, you know, uh, which people can die from, and they can have significant uh, neurologic complications of that that are going to be lifelong. Uh, we know that there's an increased uh, risk of metabolic changes, including insulin resistance and diabetes, uh, in giving uh, these cross-sex hormones, um, uh, and many of the. Uh, outcomes as far as heart attacks leading to death um, are going to take many years. And so since we're starting these in children uh, at a young age, we haven't even reached the, the point where we're going to fully understand what's going on. But already the information is coming out um, that they're, they're not uh, uh, safe uh, in that respect. There's a lot of desire to make the argument that they are uh, safe. But it's like, and it's not unexpected. So in any medicine that we give, there's going to be risks and benefits. Yeah. Um, really, the question is, you know, are the risks acceptable uh, in relation to what the benefit is? And the argument that's often made is that the um, if they don't receive these hormones, they're going to commit suicide. Right. So then, you know, they're going to be dead. And so therefore, we can tolerate all of these um, other uh, outcomes because the, they're not committing suicide. Can you see that? Because that that's yeah. very very widespread. You know the 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 phrase. You know, do you want an, an alive daughter or a dead son? You hear that. Uh, right. I hear it a lot, actually. Um, so right. it's like I could hear somebody saying, "Yeah, I understand the risk, but um, there's things we do to fight cancer, and we understand the risk, but I'd rather not die of cancer. So I don't mind having other health side effects." So can can you speak to the kind of like suicidality right. versus the health risks and the mitigation there? And this this is another example of of you know a desire you know uh, to to do good um, by not really critically evaluating what the evidence is. So really, in treating children, we do not have that long term data. It does not exist right now. The largest uh, study that's going on right now is um, what's called an observational study. So these uh, children are being treated and they're being followed over time to see what the outcome is. They really don't have any hypothesis. They're just trying to figure out what's going to happen. Well, where we do have uh, evidence is in the adult population. So uh, people that were started later, you know, after they have gone through puberty and early adulthood or later. Uh, and there's a couple of very important studies uh, that have come out that really need to raise questions about um, whether what we're doing is, is truly beneficial in that regard with suicide. One of the ones that is often quoted is a, a Swedish study that was published in 2011. Um, the, the Swedish uh, healthcare system is in the government itself is such that they collect um, an inordinate amount of data on every single person in the country so that it's not a biased sample, uh, which is another problem with, with many of the, the research studies that are done. So we get a, a population-based sample, and they look several decades uh, after uh, affirming interventions were uh, performed, so both cross-sex hormones and with or without surgery, and looked at what the outcome was. Now, this wasn't a controlled study, so that it is not possible from that study to say whether that intervention changed what the outcome would have been otherwise. But what the data shows is that the the rates of completed suicide um, are still 19-fold above the background population. 
So what one can say with confidence is that it didn't fix the problem. There's still ongoing issues. Now, what many people will say is the reason for that is um, that they weren't able to, to socially pass as, as the desired um, you know, uh, sexual appearance, and they had many uh, areas of social stigma. And those are reasonable hypotheses. We can ask those questions. But in, in the end, that data does not show that it fixed the problem. So it, you know, this claim that it's going to prevent suicide is not supported by that information. A more recent paper uh, came out um, where um, they looked at mental health outcomes uh, after uh, cross-sex hormones and surgery. Um, and this came out just in the past year. Uh, the conclusion of the paper as it was published, it was a paper by a lead author, author named Brandstrom, um, was that uh, surgery, cross, uh, the uh, gender-affirming surgery uh, improved mental health. Um, when the data was analyzed, um, it was clear that it, it was, there were many uh, problems with the way the data was analyzed. And even before saying that, um, they claimed in the paper initially uh, and showed uh, that the cross-sex hormones themselves didn't affect mental health. So that was already shown not to be beneficial. Because of, of uh, challenges by many different investigators who looked at that data, they reanalyzed the data. They didn't retract the paper. They just made the claim that they probably uh, overstated their claims. Um, Were you one of and the really ones, I know I know Will Malone wrote a critique of it, and I think you did too, right? Or several endocrinologists? Several people did, and, and not all of them got their uh, critiques, um, you know, published. Um, but um, in the end, what that study um, showed is that the affirmative approach did not change. Um, you know, and taught by affirmative approach, cross-sex hormones in, in gender-affirming surgeries did not uh, alter um, mental health outcomes um, in, in the patients that were studied. So basically, it showed that it wasn't uh, having the benefit that they were purporting that it had. Now, those are only two studies. There's other st studies out there um, as well. Um, and there's a need you know, to be very rigorous in, in looking at this data. Another interesting uh, observation is that, uh, again, because these are not controlled studies, um, you know, comparing patients that have other um, issues um, unrelated to gender dysphoria and what is the rate of suicide by depression alone, independent of gender dysphoria uh, or some of these other comorbidities that we have. And when you actually are objectively looking at this patient population, they're at very high risk uh, of, of attempted and, and completed suicide just by having um, depression and anxiety. And so, um, and then, you know, trying to sort out how much of the, that um, psychological or psychiatric comorbidity preceded the gender identity. So it's not really established, you know, which is um, the chicken or the egg is, is the way that we often say it. Um, you know, a lot of questions that can be asked about uh, about uh, what's underlying that. Um, and then that leads to a, a corollary, you know, a question, um, you know, that what is the best way to approach the depression and the anxiety and the eating disorders and all these other things that are going on? Um, and is that sufficient uh, to be able to uh, prevent um, that suicide outcome. So there's many questions that can be asked uh, from a rigorous scientific uh, standpoint. There's data that's already available that uh, indicates, um, you know, that um, this whole question of, su of suicidality um, is not necessarily dependent upon affirmation. Uh, there are, are really a, a, a an absence of, of rigorous studies that are, are being done looking at uh, modern psychological approaches. And again, one of the reasons why that is, is that um, there are some that make the claim that uh, psychological approaches are um, 
harmful and they don't work. And they, they make that categorically um, by citing papers from decades uh, in the past uh, using outdated psychological methods, um, many of them merely case reports. And many of those actual studies that they cite do show benefit for some patients. They dismiss that completely. They just say it's it's categorically harmful and not helpful. What has not been done is to apply modern approaches to, to psychotherapy. And again, I'm an endocrinologist, but um, but know enough um, in treating um, other things like uh, uh, anxiety and depression in, in my patients with diabetes, for example. You know, to know the the benefit of of being able to do that. Um, there, even to to get go so far as to when a patient comes in. Requesting these uh, interventions to explore in detail all of the underlying psychosocial dynamics that are going on, all of the preceding um, uh, components of psychological health, um, you know, um, as you know, contributing to to uh, this desire to uh, receive this intervention. Um, is not given the weight that it normally would or should um, in these conditions. And there's, they, that's a great overview. And, and um, I've, I've seen it happening, especially in Canada, in, in, in the U.S. and in Australia and other places where any kind of psycho, psychosocial attempt or psychoanalysis, psych, psychological attempt to address the dysphoria is being labeled as conversion therapy. And so you have policies being enacted. I think some are even put into place to where you'll have the phrase, you know, um, it is illegal to try to change somebody's sexual orientation or gender identity. Those are two very different things. Um, I mean, another way of saying change someone's gender identity, you could say the same thing a different way, saying helping somebody to live in their body, accept their body, which in every other field that I'm aware of is what we what we do like if somebody has some kind of body dysmorphia i know that's a broad category but we try to address we we try to help them live into that gender dysphoria is the only one where that i'm aware of where it's 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 the exact opposite is is true in, in some attempts you know do, can you i mean are, are you seeing that 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 kind of subtle correlation between sexual orientation and gender identity change being labeled conversion therapy and i don't know how this is being past because this is these are very seem very different to me but um yeah, in in many respects it's not so subtle. I think it's a it's a directed, you know, a, attempt um and again, you know, it's important to be very precise in the words that we use uh, and to be accurate in what we're doing. And I think this is certainly the the people that have um, underlying ideological uh, desires um, want to be able to use that language in a way to achieve a desired outcome. Um, you know, what is being uh, conflated um, are things that were done in a different condition um, in a different era. I, I think that when using even the using the word conversion therapy denotes many things that I think all uh, uh, physicians, you know, would would say, you know, that that's uh, approaches that that nobody would support. Um, that's very different um, than the you know psychological investigation and support for people who have gender dysphoria. Um, 
and and really, I think it is a, an intentional uh, use of that word, and it's an intentional uh, desire uh, to conflate different conditions uh, to be able to um, really uh, suppress uh, the conversation that needs to go on. Um, you know, I, you, you may know that I, I use the term reparative therapy. Even, even that is, um, you know, what are we actually trying to do? So that if you, if you talk about what, you know, converting. <laughs> Yeah, and we're talking about what one's identity is in their uh, of their gender, of who they are as male or female, uh, in relation to their biological sex. So one could, you know, make the argument of in the opposite direction that that by altering the appearance of the body, one is converting oneself, you know, to uh, a, a different phenotype um, or appearance. Uh, so I, I think there, you know, I think you touched upon um, things that are out there in the in the dialogue. And this is where from the really important scientific and, and medical discussion where we need to be very objective, we need to, to really maintain, you know, um, focus on on what our goals are, in the area of best medical practice um, to really try to, at least we need to acknowledge where the biases are, but, but you know, expose the ideology that's behind this because it's not helpful in the, in the dialogue so that you know, people can disagree uh, about the nature of the human person you know, from a, uh, a philosophical or theological standpoint. But what we're talking about here is what is best medical practice? You know, what are we going to be you know, able to do to have the best benefit uh, for the um, the individual that comes for for our care, um, minimizing the risk uh, and, and maximizing benefit. We have just a couple more minutes, uh, Paul, and I don't want to keep you past the hour. But can you give just a last word of um, advice to parents? I know there's probably a lot of parents listening to this that have kids that are, you know, maybe identifying, exploring, or maybe wanting to get on hormones or whatever. What would be your advice to uh, specifically to parents who are in this situation? Um, that's an excellent question and a, a very important way to kind of uh, wrap up this discussion because uh, very frequently, uh, you know, parents are, are seeking answers. I mean, parents uh, in general, um, in loving their children, want to do the best for them. Many of them will have very um, significant questions about what is being offered uh, as far as the best treatment. They'll intuitively um, have reservations about that. Um, they're often not in a position of knowledge or authority to really challenge or question uh, what their practitioners are, are, are telling them. Uh, I think just to, uh, having the discussion that we're having uh, today, um, I think is helpful uh, to at least um, bring to the surface, bring to light um, that there are so many questions uh, that are going on. The way it needs to be presented to parents uh, to be very true to, to what we're actually doing is we're engaging in an experiment, a very large experiment uh, with an unknown outcome. And uh, in other areas of medicine, you know, when we engage in, in experimentation, we acknowledge that and um, try to um, put up safeguards, you know, to really help. Now, from the parent standpoint, um, you know, um, I can only um, reinforce what I think most parents um, will do. I mean, you know, to to really, even though they're they're confused, um, they're anxious, they're they're wanting to do the best for their children, um, you know, to love their children, uh, to accept them unconditionally for who they are, 
Um, and as any parent would do in other areas, that doesn't mean they can do anything that they want. Parents in other areas will set very clear boundaries. Um, they'll have conversations about what is acceptable and not acceptable within the family. Um, there are things that parents will say no to where the child desperately desires you know, to have um, you know, to drink alcohol or, or smoke or, or put their hand on a hot stove. Um, so the parents, um, you know, just to, to love their children, uh, to uh, accept them for who they are, yet actually, um, you know, uh, still um, seek out help um, that will have long-term benefit for them. Paul, th- I just can't thank you enough for all of this. A lot to digest, and I'm gonna I'll post these studies in the show notes. Um, they they are important ones you mentioned a few minutes ago. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing, and I many, many blessings on your continued work and and um, yeah, uh, wisdom in this really important area. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. 